This is the Fixed Plasm podcast, dissecting fiction for role-playing inspiration. And I'm Ralph. This is the third and final episode of the three-part um, Imagica sequence of episodes, where I'm going to talk about the uh, approximately the last 20 chapters, around 450 pages out of 1,136. So, as usual, um, I'll give the synopsis of the remaining item, and then I want to cover, talk about some pretty important themes that run right the way through the series. And finally, again, a role-playing section. So here's the synopsis. It's 157 days since Chandler left the Fifth Dominion, and he returns to Gamut Street, which is the site of the last attempted ritual. Unknown to him, Sartori has already been here and laid a trap in the form of Little Ease, a kind of mind flare imp from the Innovo, the nightmare void between the Dominions. This creature attacks him by provoking memories, and he recalls his past experience as the Maestro Sartori and the attempt at reconciliation which failed. This failure apparently unleashed the horrors of the Innovo on the world, which duly tore apart the bystanders, the ghosts of whom Little Ease manipulates to torment Gentle. Whether they're actually real or a figment of Gentle's imagination doesn't really make a difference. Um, we also note that the last failed reconciliation resulted in the birth of the Tabula Rasa, as Roxburgh, once one of the maestro's staunch allies, declares the practice of magic to be an abomination and vows to snuff it out in the future. And we also find out that it was actually Sartori's double, that would be the current Autarch, or current Sartori, that tampered with the ritual in the first place. And since that individual is a direct result of Gentle's debauchery, both the failure and the tabula rasa are Gentle's fault. Now, Gentle manages to break free of Little Ease's torments, but the act robs him of his recent memories, and he becomes a, a vagrant, falling in and falling out with the homeless on the streets. After a brief power struggle with a character called Tolland, he befriends the gang and then starts to reassert control of his memory, the only way he knows how, by painting. In this case, painting graffiti. Judith, who came back with Gentle and also arrived on the Godolphin estate, attends a party thrown by Klein, one of Gentle's friends who gave him his forgery gigs. There, she sees Gentle behaving like his bad old self. Now, we know it's not Gentle, but she still can't tell the difference, doesn't know that there is a difference, and they hook up. And the next day, she's languishing in bed after Gentle leaves and gets a call from Oscar, you remember Oscar, who has been worrying himself sick about her since their transit ritual was hijacked by Dowd. When they meet, he reveals one of his treasures is a scrying bowl, and that it's given him a vision of the future, a terrifying force flying out of the First Dominion and laying waste to everything throughout the Imagica. Another thing Oscar reveals is that members of the Tabula Rasa have been systematically bumped off by an unknown force. Clearly, then, he's next. But Jude has other things on her mind. She's had two failed attempts to get into Roxburgh Tower, now, if you remember the blue eye, it was supposedly destroyed by Dowd's might when he killed Clara Leash the last time she tried to get to the tower. She returns to the tower and, with a bit of hunting around, she finds what's left of the eye. It's little more than a, a little egg. They call it the blue egg. And she uses the blue egg once more to try to scry into the tower, but instead it shows her a vision of Gentle. Not the clean-cut Gentle she shared a bed with last night, but a dishevelled character with several days' growth of beard sleeping in a gutter somewhere. What's up with that? So she basically shrugs her shoulders and goes after her own mission. Yeah, she's a player character. She enlists Oscar's help to get into the Roxburgh Tower, finally, 
And we, as the reader, know Oscar's days are numbered, but still, it goes downhill for him very, very suddenly as the two of them split up, only for Judith to come looking for him and finding Dowd standing over his surgically disemboweled corpse. Of course, the, the assumption is that Dowd has killed the rest of the tabula rasa, but no, he doesn't know anything about that, and he's got no reason to lie. So we assume instead that it's Sartori making a blank slate to the tabula rasa. Ha ha. Uh, a bit of an aside here, it, this kind of annoyed me. It doesn't make logical sense. Why Sartori would go after the tabula rasa is, well, okay, he's a psychopath, but, but how? How does he do it? This is a secret society in a world that he's had nothing to do with for centuries. How on earth does he start eliminating members of that society with surgical precision? Dowd, on the other hand, knows who these people are and is also a psychopath. It doesn't make sense. Okay, uh, back to the plot. Judith has finally found Celestine, a 200-year-old demigod wrapped in bandages and held in a cell in the basement of the Tabula Rasa's tower. Jolly good. She faces off with Dowd, who, by the way, has inserted bits of the shattered pivot, the big magical stone at the centre of everything, under his skin. End result, Dowd is put down again and, and Celestine leaves with Judith. Now, by chance, Clem, a side character from way back in the first episode, comes across Gentle, the, the dishevelled homeless Gentle, being helped by this new tribe that he's amassed around him, and manages to steer Gentle back towards the plot, with some new characters in tow, namely Monday, who will become Gentle's protégé as an artist, and who is also the lover of Hoi Polloi, the, uh, the daughter of Peckable, back in the Second Dominion. Okay, so think about this. Basically, the GM gave Judith's player a, a vision of a different homeless gentle, and Judith's player said, Bullshit, I'm going for the woman in the town now I've levelled up. Gentle is on his own. So the GM had to pull out an NPC to bring the gang back together. But together they are. We discover that Celestine is Gentle's mother, abducted by Dowd while she was watching a hanging at Tyburn 200 years ago. He brought her all the way to the erasure at the edge of the First Dominion, this is the great crime alluded to by the Durthas that was committed against the goddess by the Umberheld centuries ago. It mirrors a parable about Nissi Nirvana, who entered a city of iniquities where no ghost was holy and no flesh was whole. This parable relates directly to Celestine, brought into the Umberheld city and raped by a god, and gentle is the result. Okay, uh, another aside. Um, just narrating this makes me a bit uncomfortable. I just finished rereading the Magicians trilogy by Lev Grossman, in which Julia is raped by Reynard the Fox, who's a preternatural god, raising the debate about rape being a respectable device for character development. And it, it isn't, obviously. But here, one of the key themes running through this novel is the suppression of the female by the male, presumably taking its cues from biblical mythology, and perhaps discomfort is the whole point. Anyway, from now on, we have a, a long, drawn-out sequence of the various characters enacting the reconciliation ritual from their position in Gamut Street. It spans several chapters. It involves gentle travelling uh, in astral form, I think, to the other Dominions to make contact with the other maestros who are on hand to help with the ritual. You need you need one maestro in each Dominion, apparently. Uh, he makes peace with Tick Raw, this, this character that they met in the Fourth Dominion, who he annoyed. Um, mainly because he was clueless about his actual identity at that time. Um, he talks to Chica Jaquin, who, who happens actually to be Sartori's old apprentice that Gendel had completely forgotten, and so on. Um, it's all kind of tiresome, to be honest. But between these, we do have a couple of saving graces in the narrative. 
Uh, first, there's this philosophizing about what this ongoing creation myth is all about. There's the suggestion that there have been several reconciliation attempts before Gentle attempted his, and the reason for their failure may not be human incompetence, but actual sabotage. Gentle isn't the first son of the unbeheld, and the unbeheld sons are burdened with the task of making the reconciliation happen. This means that the reconciliation has been attempted many times, but somehow thwarted. So there's a what if. What if Christos didn't die to save humankind from sin, but actually died to save humankind from the Father? Which is kind of heavy. While this is going on, Sartori is mounting a full-scale assault on the house where the ritual is being planned, summoning demonic animals from the Innovo to attack the inhabitants, all very good standard Clive Barker stuff. The house is under siege and Sartori eventually finds a way inside, first with the intent of a murder-suicide involving Jude, then, when that fails, of murdering Gentle. The end result is messy and Sartori faces death and Gentle isn't far behind. And with his dying breath, Sartori tells Jude that the reconciliation will result in the completion of the Magicka as a circle, at which point Hapax Mendius will destroy everything with his divine fire. Gentle has been grievously wounded and is encouraged by Celestine to go, in astral form, to the First Dominion and confront Hapax Mendius. He duly does so and discovers a city. He realises that the god is the city. He likens the walls and archways, stairs and windows to muscle, bone and skin. Gentle convinces his father to appear in human form, which the god achieves by forming himself into a misshapen and grotesquely huge body out of the city around him. This concentrates his form such that the divine fire he has loosed upon the world comes back to strike him, because the reconciled magicka is a circle. And the rest of the story is aftermath. The male god of the whole magicka is now destroyed by his own fire. The female goddesses have since been drawing the various tribes of the magicka towards the centre of Yuzodorex, which is now flooded and lush with foliage. You know, water is the motif of female divinity and fertility. There's a, a certain amount of naming of goddesses, which is a, of little consequence to the overall plot, but does challenge Judith's identity as a woman. All in all, though, it's a win. The patriarchy has been smashed. Uh, now, in the epilogue, Gentle begins his last pilgrimage, accompanied by Monday, who is desperate to hook up again with Hoi Polloi, who herself has been swept up as Judith's companion and has got ahead of them into the other dominions. When everyone finally converges on the newly flooded goddess Blethusodorex, Gentle and Judith meet for a final time. Judith has born Sartori's child. Oh yes, I forgot to mention that. Judith was made pregnant and that there's this pregnancy side plot. Um, but yes, Judith has born Sartori's child and the child likes to play with a blue egg. But in the end, the child gives it up so that Gentle can have it. Gentle then takes the egg to the First Dominion, which is now just this rotting, decaying husk and he uses it to seed a biblical flood in the First Dominion, which washes the Imagica clean of the male god's decaying remains. Finally, while Gentle is travelling, he's been drawing a map, something that, from the beginning of his adventures in the other dominions, he's insisted should be created. Now that his map is created, he bequeathed it to Monday, with the instruction to draw it everywhere he can find in every dominion. We learn that the Imagica is a circle, and now Gentle has passed into this circle, and apparently been reunited with Pi. Gentle's legacy, therefore, is a map to follow in his footsteps to enlightenment. This is you know, clearly the birth of a new religion. So, um, is that a satisfying ending? 
I'm not sure. I mean, I'm going to talk now about the themes, and some of the themes are quite deep. And as you'll see, they've actually been the subject of a fairly intense academic study, which I'm going to talk about. Probably the most significant theme running through Magica is masculine and feminine identity, the separation of sexes, divine woman versus divine man, and so on. The book Wonderlands of Flesh and Blood by Christian Dahlman, published in 2009, is subtitled Gender, the Bodies, Its Boundaries and Transgression in Clive Barker's Imagica. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, I think you can buy you can download the ebook for free so you can read it yourself. The first few chapters of the treatise talk about the paradox of the body and catalogue Barker's other work from early plays and the Books of Blood through Hellraiser, Great and Secret Show, Damnation Game, Galilee, Cold Heart Canyon, all the way to Mr. B. Gone. So uh, it omits the Scarlet Gospels because uh, it predates that. But otherwise it's pretty comprehensive. And after that we get to the meat of the book talking about Imagica. Chapter 4 gives a brief synopsis, then talks about Imagica in Barker's oeuvre and gives this quote from Gary Hoppenstead. Quote, Amidst its complex plot and huge cast of characters, Imagica is a feminist examination into the destructive power of a male-dominated society, emphasising a setting framed by several different layers of dimensional reality and by an elaborate discussion of how imagination functions as metaphor and as magical power. Then we get to... Chapter 5, the main event, a discussion of the body in a magica. Dowman talks about Barker's use of metaphor to evoke the body. Quote, Character traits are shed like dead skin. The landscape is scarred. Thoughts are lost between brain and tongue. Or protagonists enter a building's bowels. And there's also the metaphorization of the body as city, and also the city as a body, where Dowman uses this quote. His mind spread to all compass points and up and down to have the sum of the room. It was an easy space to grasp. Generations of prison poets had made the analogies for him, and he borrowed them freely. The walls were his body's limits, the door his mouth, the windows his eyes. That reminds me of a Roger Zelazny group of short stories. Then um, we have, of course, Yuzodorex, the city being regarded as a god, whose followers show their devotion by living within its body, and the city god Hapax Mendos itself, or himself, on which Dalman has this comment, quote, The patriarchal god is nothing more than an anatomical joke withered in his greed for megalomania. His body has been corrupted by the transgression into a material object. A regression is only possible within the scope of the grotesque. The chaotic body represents Hapax Mendias' loss of humanity and order, which he propagated, as well as his disregard for versatility. The city of God, a theocracy ruling in the Imagica's first dominion, presents a crippled body politic. Hapax Mendias' death leaves a land devastated and putrefied. It is not until an intervention by the goddesses that the dominion gains new fertility. And then there's the discussion on gender, on which Dalman notes, quote, in the novel, the characters' sex and gender are generally determined by their body's biologic characteristics, but without supporting heteronormativity or excluding performative gender roles. Nevertheless, apart from the character of Piapa, the novel is less interested in the definition of gender, but rather deals with the established stereotype gender role models as well as the power structures involved. Now, in the subsection of Goddesses, Mothers and Monsters, 
Dowman notes that, quote, hierarchies of power between the sexes, patriarchal aggression and female oppression were already covered in Barker's Books of Blood. In A Magica too, misogynist tendencies are usually triggered by male hunger for power, Christian religion and, last but not least, male fear and envy of the female. Besides the attempt to create a mythological background for these circumstances, Magica depicts a proverbial battle of the sexes, which even reaches the realm of gods and goddesses, but sporadically fails to avoid certain stereotypes. Down continues, continues later noting that, quote, Apart from the fact the novel ends with the goddesses recapturing the Imagica without portraying them as a ruling authority, there are comparatively few female protagonists. Among them, only Judith can be considered a round character. This is, however, no coincidence, since she forms a trio with the characters of Gentle and Poe Rather than going in-depth into this chapter, I'd recommend you read this section yourself, because then you'll see the footnotes and the references. As I said before, I'll link to the website in the show notes. I'd just like to highlight this later comment concerning the identities of the goddesses, though. Quote, the novel uses several patterns established throughout the history of gender-related motifs. The goddesses Tishalule, Jokolailau, and Uma Umagamaji, which follow the concept of the triple goddess, that's virgin, mother, and crone, represent nature and especially water, the element of fertility. This applies both to their semiotic and fleshly body. Tishalule, the cradle lady, is characterized by water in particular, the goddess forms the cradle, a sea that can change its aggregate state from solid to fluid. On an island in the middle of the sea, there's a psychiatric clinic for which the term lunatic asylum is rather appropriate. For its inmates, the sea is an unconquerable obstacle. According to that, the female to some degree embraces and confines madness, which is ironically the trait that has been attributed to women throughout literary history again and again. And then a little later, this quote about the female relationship to the body compared with that of the male. Quote, In contrast to their male opponent, the goddesses have not forgotten their fleshly body. We haven't forgotten the flesh we had, she said to Jude. We've known the frailties of your condition. We remember its pains and discomforts. We know what it is to be wounded in the heart, in the head, in the womb. Although the goddesses exist in a state of extracorporeal transcendence, they can still access and quasi-regain a proper physical body. Alright, leaving behind the discussion of the female, which could fill an entire episode, or three, let's see what Dalman says about the male. The subsection concerning the male opens with these lines, quote, a dying friend of Judith tells her of his dreams about his mother, and that he wants to crawl back into her to be born all over again. One of the Orktark's torture victims, in pain and drugged by a creature from the Inovo, pictures himself in the womb. The clone Sartori envies him. I never have floated in a mother. Primeval dissolution comes along with the idea of corporeal unity with the mother which implies peeling away the body's boundaries. When Gentle enters the inside of the Magica at the end of the novel, he has achieved this state. The text, through Judith, characterises men as the sex which worships fixedness. This condition is applied to the body. Hence, Gentle at one point thinks about getting rid of his penis, if this will enable him to experience the mistress' third sex. The desire for leaving corporeal boundaries behind in this case is due to the spirit of amorous adventure. According to the novel, man's dilemma is that his body is sealed up and therefore confined. Dowman also refers to this quote from Klein in the novel. Quote, 
Men invented the church so that they could bleed for Christ, so that they could be entered by the Holy Spirit, so that they could be saved from being sealed up. Dowman then note, notes that, quote, Quasar is convinced that men thirst for being possessed, and for, the, and for this reason, men maybe are frequently affected by possession. So, in summary, men both want the Holy Spirit within them, whether it's whether that's within their mind or an orifice, and struggle with the confines of their own bodies. There is more content and nuance to this section, although it's shorter than the preceding one on the female. But now we've discussed male and female and what they want, there's the question of Piopar, and Dalman notes that the novel falls back on binary sex categories all the way up to social structures and religious symbols. Dalman notes of the mystic's role in the novel, quote, the novel plays with sexually defined border areas which culminate in the character of Piopar. And then a little later, quote, the character of Piopar furthermore illustrates directly and indirectly the cultural imprint by means of a binary gender system, indirectly because the text has to use it to depict Pi's third sex, and directly since Gentle comes to a linguistic dead end when he tries to describe the mystic for the first time. I don't know what I'd call you if I saw you in the street, but I'd turn my head. How's that? When Gentle obsessively attempts to paint the mystic after their first encounter, it has seduced him in the shape of Judith, and Gentle witnesses the mystic's body transformation. He also finds himself confronted with difficulties. Now, these difficulties are illustrated in a long quote from Magica around Gentle's artistic process in trying to capture Pi on canvas, an illustration that Judith later sees and notes the duality of that character. So, after Dalman's discussion of male and female identity, there's another compelling section on grotesques and physical transgressions. And Dalman's called this section Carnival, uh, and opens with this paragraph, quote, uh, Barker's stories are full of hybrid human-animal beings, surrealistic-appearing creatures, erotic monsters, and bizarrely-shaped revenants. On the one hand, these characters are used for a colourful and tantalising thrill. On the other hand, they represent everyone's desire to escape from daily routine and to leave the limits of their own body behind. In the day, we are social creatures, but at night we descend to the dream world where nature reigns, where there is no law but sex, cruelty and metamorphosis. Of course, the transgression of corporeal boundaries to break free from fleshly limits in the form of the fantastic body is no unique feature of the creatures in Barker's works or Imagica, respectively. The specialness of the night breed, Cenobites, Mystiffs, Nilotics, and all their Barker-esque relatives is the awareness of being a mirror for our fears and desires. You call us monsters, a so-called monster tells a frightened human in the movie Nightbreed. But when you dream, you dream of flying and changing and living without death. Linda Bradley writes, monsters are our transgressive desires. Now, I've noted earlier that Barker's monsters are outwardly grotesque and inwardly human. The baseline is Cabal and Nightbreed, which, as I've said before, had a big effect on me. And when I thought of the antagonists in Department V, the 13 tribes of Atlantis, I was very much channeling Barker from both Cabal and Magicka. They may be alien creatures, but they have individual personality and motivations, and I do feel that the monsters in Cabal are more human than the humans. The transgressive nature of the monsters in Imagica sometimes comes from appropriating physical features and putting them in unexpected places, such as the Nullianak, with its praying hands for a head. 
Dalman notes that their heads in form of praying hands are no sign of devoutness, but mark the violent hand of God or hapax mendius respectively. And of course, physical transgression is central to the concept of the mystiff, not only because it pushes gender boundaries, but also because it physically adapts to the minds and desires of the observers. Dalman catalogues some of the other grotesques that appear in the texts, some of which are used for their shock or novelty value, and not much else. There's there's a useful distinction between the monsters of the Inovo, which are properly demonic and devoid of humanity, and those from the Dominions, which do tend to be human. Now, characters also go through transformation, and Dalman notes the similarities between Quasar and Celestine's transformations into demons with tentacular appendages, likening this manifestation of snakes to representations of the female deities in the underworld and, and in myth, for example, Medusa. So you have this expression of power which manifests as a physical extension of the body. Um, and both Gentle and Sartori use weapons that are manifest from bodily fluid. Uh, and of course, we also have this suggestion more than once that Gentle should sacrifice himself, that it's his own blood that the land or society wants. A lot of this is about externalization of the spirit and power, and with that comes violence. Damon notes that Barker likes hooks and graphic, graphic descriptions of the destruction of the body and makes this comment re violent aesthetics. Quote, Imagica uses graphic violence as a visual stylistic device. It intends to provoke and shock. But above all, the novel does not want to conceal anything from the reader. In this context, the novel is pursuing not so much an aesthetic merit as a cathartic effect. On the other hand, aesthetic qualities can be attributed to the grotesque beauty of the bodies of the wonderfully monstrous, which sometimes result from violence. Dowden also comments about Dowd's corporeal transformation. Dowd is probably the character that changes the most, first being transgressed upon by Godolphin by violent murder in the front of the rest of the tabula rasa, then transforming as he's resurrected, then later taking on the physical mass of the pivot in his own body. Now, there's a lot of sex and a lot of death in Magicka, and unsurprisingly, Dalman also mentions the connections between the two in a section called The Body Between Eros and Thanatos. Magicka is explicit throughout, and the way some of the acts are described, they transcend normal physical limits, with these uh, sex rituals achieving this sublimation of the flesh that's so important to both men and female spirituality. Now, of the mind-body dichotomy, Dalman posits that Quote, Imagica suggests having a body and being a spirit. Dalman further writes, quote, In contrast to the different facets of the body, the novel's concept of the soul is rather conventional. While the body is literally taken to pieces and recomposed, the soul is spared for the most part. Hence, although Imagica considers the spirit superior to the body, the novel focuses on the latter. A simple explanation lies in the fact that the body is physical and therefore easier to comprehend and describe. Bodies can be created, souls cannot. Lastly, Dalman comments on the body as identity, with this to say about the various transformations. Quote, Thus far, body transformations, stroke modifications, have been described in terms of the transgression of corporeal boundaries. In this context, changes in personality or the self-concept often parallel physical changes of the body. 
The character Dowd can be considered the prime example of this process. Almost every character in the novel finds a new self throughout the plot, mostly in accordance with physical change. Corporeal boundaries are shaken off to break off from the exemplary body of society. Alright, that is a lot to unpack and then fit into a role-playing game. But I just want to mention one other complementary theme, which is around cities and their identity. Now, Imagica isn't city fiction in the way that, say, Viriconium or The City and the City explore the actual details of cities, but it does make several references to cities. In the very first chapter, Estabrook refers to London as she, stating that all cities are female. But by contrast, Hapax Mendius in the First Dominion is a masculine city of iniquity, a god city. Um, Yazodorix arguably goes through a transformation as well. It's not clear if it were ever truly male, but on our first encounter it's certainly violent and chaotic. Once it's taken over by the female presence in the form of the Flood, it takes on a tranquil and fertile aspect. Um, I've written a tool for city building, which I'll link in the show notes. Now, um, that's mainly for building and playing in a single city, but there's no reason it can't be used maybe in a simplified form for several cities. The way it works is like this. You have various districts and locations within those. That's a, a topological representation of the city for purely practical reasons. But the city also has this hierarchy. So pawns and knights are the lowest down on the ladder and they represent individuals. Bishops and rooks are factions, um, government offices, political groups, that sort of thing. Uh, and the king and queen sit at the top. They're not necessarily a literal king and queen, uh, but the queen represents authority, and the king represents destiny uh, and vision and connection to higher powers. So, crucially, these pieces can move about, and when the king is deposed, the whole character of the city should change. And this is exactly what I, I see happening in Yzodorex. Under the Autark, the city's vision was violent, self-serving, and degenerate. And under the influence of the goddess, it's completely transformed with a very different purpose. So if there's any takeaway from this, it's not just that different cities should have different character, but it's also that they can change their character. This dynamic change uh, in a whole city isn't often seen in a fantasy fiction. What we usually do is assume that cities have too much cultural inertia to change at all, particularly ancient cities that have seen many ages. Well, think about a city like M. John Harrison's Viriconium, uh, a kind of patchwork that never shows its true face to the reader, just glimpses of the identities it's had. Even this kind of grand and inscrutable city is layer upon layer of different architects and visionaries. Um, I'm going to come back to this topic some other time when I'm talking about one of those other pieces of city fiction. For now on, uh, it's high time we actually talked about the role-playing bit. So, this is a role-playing podcast. And you might be thinking, well, okay, men desire to be possessed and transcendent women remember their former flesh. Um, so what? What does this mean for my game? There are a few examples of modern games which do play with gender identity, heteronormativity, patriarchy, and so on. I think it's fair to say, as an observer that the important thing they do is to bring marginalised and overlooked societies to the forefront in, in an otherwise straight white male field. And that's a, that's a fair and good ambition in and of itself. Now, do these games like Monster Hearts and other proponents of queer culture actually examine male and female identity? 
I don't feel qualified to pass a comment on that. I think I'm right to say that Monster Hearts can be played without queer content, just as all Powered by the Apocalypse games can be played without the sex and intimacy rules that tend to divide opinion. Um, so any examination of queer culture or gender representation is likely to be what the players bring to the game, and often probably freeform, not so much to do with the rules, although there are exceptions. If it's if it is freeform, if it's got nothing to do with the rules, then obviously nothing stopping you bringing this to any game where you can play a queer character or a person of colour or someone with a disability um, if you want to improve representation. But here I, I want to talk about games that specifically mechanise gender and what works and what doesn't. As soon as you kind of talk about that, um, as soon as you think about a game like that, it's it starts to get risky because you're effectively saying, I'm going to exclude some players from some aspects of the game. Now, playing devil's advocate, you might ask, well, why does that actually matter when we play role-playing games where characters are excluded from certain activities and scenes based on class and proficiency? But players don't usually think of selecting gender as a proficiency, and I think that a lot of player expectation is tied into proficiency. You know, that is your character skill, that is your ability to affect the narrative by your competency. So this is a, a bit of a minefield to negotiate, and there's a lot of opportunities I see to get it wrong. The first thing that I know has got it wrong uh, is historical LARP. That's LARP as a LARP that covers a, covers a historical period. I'm, I am picking a real example of a game where uh, basically, first of all, male and female players were required to play characters of that gender. Then we find out that male and female behaviour is segregated for, air quotes, historical accuracy. So what happens is that the men get to have duels and run off on adventures, and the women congregate in salons and have discussions and intrigue and insult each other. And what you're saying in this setup is a male player will have a different game experience to a female player. That doesn't sound good, does it? Okay, so let's say you let players of any gender play the character they want. That fixes the problem of excluding players from the game they want. It doesn't make the game equal. And in this instance, you have a problem that the two activities aren't comparable. They're not synchronous. They don't even happen in the same time frame. If you've ever played a lot where the GMs permit characters to leave the play space and play through side quests, you'll know that this is incredibly disruptive. So while a few characters are off having adventures, everyone else is sitting in the main room and there's only so much conversation that can go around while the GM monopolising player is outside the room having an adventure of their own. And one reason this happens is the game system is heavily mechanised towards the, air quotes, male side. By that I mean the duels and the adventuring and the risk-taking. But it's totally freeform towards the female side. That would be the sitting around in the salon and gossiping. Now, I don't mean to say that those are actually male and female traits, but they are different. So if you're going to segregate this, I think there's an argument whether you should do this at all anyway. I think one thing you must not do is have detailed mechanisms on one side 
and a bare afterthought of a system on the other side. And that's before you have to worry about LARP logistics and the actual organisation of LARPs and allowing things to happen outside the room. Okay, um, I'm going to take a real example now of a tabletop game, an agenda-segregated game. Or maybe gender-segregated is the wrong way to phrase it. But I'm going to, I'm going to talk about Sagas of the Icelanders, Powered by the Apocalypse game, which has male and female moves, which mean men and women have different spaces in which they can exert influence and affect the plot. Um, and a lot of it is about what society expects of the different genders. So if you want to explore that, okay. Um, for reference, for men, it's tackling risky situations, physical challenges, insults, honour. And for women, it's enticing men and goading them to action, talking sense, and conceiving children. Most of those are okay if all the players have agreed to be bound by the rules... It does pass the test of having equal system weight on both sides, I think. Uh, and I would say that being powered by the apocalypse, it should be even-handed as far as giving all the players the spotlight. I want to say this about the female-only moves, though. On the one hand, a lot of it is actually about leadership and spurring other people into action. And in the context of sagas, this might be a gendered activity, all right? It wouldn't be out of place in a completely different game in a completely different genre for, say, a political activist or a manipulator who is encouraging others and providing others resources to complete missions. And th there is one problem, though, and that is the move you use to conceive a child. Yeah, here's the thing. If all you read of the game are the moves... And it's perfectly reasonable for, at a convention, for a player to rock up to a table and they've got the moves in front of them and that's all they see of the game system. This is the move you, that you would see written down. Quote, When you lie with a man to conceive a child, you gain a bond with him and roll plus gendered. On a hit, you're pregnant. On a seven to nine, also choose one. Either it's the last child you'll bear or you will endure grave harm during pregnancy or the child will be born strange, sickly, or marked. This means that your likelihood of having a successful trouble-free pregnancy is A, dependent on how much your PC presents as a woman, and B, has nothing to do with a man. Uh, I don't want to misrepresent the game. Uh, this is the context in the rulebook. There's a bit more information, and it says here, quote, Family lines, inheritance, and children are a key theme in the sagas. This move keys off gendered, to stress that bearing children is a socially imposed role, not any essential female function. Okay, so you're making a point about social construction of gender. Okay, good. My counterpoint here is, here you are conflating social roles with biological function, and it's very difficult to not read the move that way. Historical context doesn't come into it. Now, with a bit of effort, you, I guess you could write this more sensitively and use it to discuss what infertility does to a family. I don't feel that's a point that needs to be made in a game. I don't want to play in that game. I will say this. We endured a lot of people being really clueless about the subject during our childless years. And some of the very worst tone-deaf, crass behaviour we saw happened in role-playing games. 
Now, of course, you've got lines and veils to help negotiate these issues. And even without lines and veils, you can choose to play with people who are sensitive and able to read the room. But it doesn't change what's written down. Um, also, I said that earlier, you know, you can just play without those rules, which is fine for the actual social contract at the table, but it doesn't change what's written down. And this item isn't confined to a playbook. It's in the player-facing handouts at the table, which creates a, a general expectation of how the game will play. I think I should draw a line under this subject now. Um, I wanted to use this to illustrate a point rather than call out a, a specific designer. And, and I want to be clear, I don't have a problem with any other aspect of the design. I do think Sargas is a compelling game. I enjoyed playing it. Um, but I think there's room for a discussion there and a discussion from people who aren't a straight my man. Moving along, the thing that interested me in Imagica for using gender as a game lever was all the talk about possession and the differences in spiritual awareness between men and women. There's a scene where Quasar meets Judith for the first time in astral form, and that connection is upset because a man appears in the scene. And I thought that could be really kind of interesting. Also know how Clara Leash refers to men and women as a different species. Um, maybe they are biologically the same as bodies are created and the spirit is the starting point, but it's arguing that maybe you know, there is a, the spirit has a maleness and a femaleness to it. So going, going to that point about how in Imagica the characters are spirits who have bodies, and those bodies can transform in many ways, you can define a character as a spirit with an identity somewhere somewhere along the male-female spectrum. And then the player then chooses how much maleness or femaleness is externalised in the physical body. Now, bringing in the other comments about grotesques and externalising the spirit as weird and transgressive forms, the game that comes to mind is Nephilim. Nephilim is not a good game overall. It has a lot of problems, uh, including the question about what the characters actually do all day. If you want an in-depth and not particularly kind discussion, I recommend the System Mastery podcast, um, the episode for Nephilim, which I will link in the show notes. But Nephilim does do a few things fairly well, one of which is the gradual emerging of the magical form. It does this by describing the transformations in head, hand, skin, odour and voice. Even more interesting, the supplement Chronicles of Awakenings replaces these physical transformations with emotional transformations. So they, these are cues for modifying behaviour with accompanying visual effects. For example, when the angel exhibits the emotion of calm, its skin becomes an ivory colour and its hair turns gold. When the triton manifests its emotion of deceit, um, the pupils of its eyes narrow to slits and its breath smells of rotten plants. And this fits in really well with the metamorphosis in Imagica where changes in temperament are expressed physically and often in grotesque ways. And this approach in the supplement goes some way to talking about the effect of the Nephilim's transformation on the people around it. I think that there are two ways you can consider this, that the physical transformation changes personality, thereby modifying relationships, or that the feelings of this spiritual being manifest as physical grotesquerie, which then has a knock-on effect on the world around them. 
Nephilim doesn't mechanise this in any way other than the transformation happens as a consequence of increasing power. And I'm wondering if you could add a Nephilim-like layer to Monster Hearts. In that game, the actual presentation isn't really discussed. Um, I think I'm right to say that there, there are no hunters and no masqueraderie to speak of, and the playgroup is free to decide if there is any transformation and if that affects the rest of the world. Going back to the then to the spiritual origins of masculinity and femininity, let's say you you define your urban fantasy characters as spirits who inhabit bodies, and these spirits have both male and female characteristics. The effect of gender is then pretty straightforward in game terms. Um, an affiliation to certain gods or goddesses, um, these gods or goddesses being the absolute representations of male and female avatars who who provide the character with male and female magic allowing them into male or female magical spaces uh, and so on if i were designing this game I'd, I'd probably do this each player conceives a a spirit which has a male side and a female side have the players write down how their male and female sides manifest uh, what male magic is and what female magic is to them, what secret societies they belong to, and so on. Then have the player decide how the spirit presents itself as a body, what male and female aspects, and also what fantastical or grotesque aspects it presents outwardly. And you could decide that a, a condition of doing male magic or female magic is that the character presents in the real world as that gender. You might end up with a PC presenting as female and therefore leaning to the feminine magic in their spirit. But you could also have a character forced to present as male to achieve actions in the male sphere. Now, um, while I'm saying this, I am trying to work out whether this is a good idea or a terrible idea. My, my fear, obviously, given what I've just been saying about sagas, is that it could be insensitive um, my hope is that by expressing characters as spirits with male and female traits on the spectrum, and from there giving players a free choice of how those traits outwardly present, and whether to pursue male or female activities, it would be sensitive to those issues. But I don't know. I identify as male. I was born male. If I were going to follow up on this idea, obviously, I'd try and get diverse input from people who had an opinion on this okay my my last point i want really to i want to briefly talk about the magica card game which came out in 1997 uh, it's one of the best looking collectible card games i've seen with art covering the whole card uh, several photographs that i've taken for the podcast have got the magica cards they, they they look gorgeous it also has this interesting setup where each player is an autark following their own scheme and agenda some might want the reconciliation to happen others might want to thwart others might want to thwart it there are several categories of cards including locations allies flash events uh, and paths and some of these are tied to specific dominions some are tied to specific factions like the artists or aphrodites and mostly this puts me in mind of how a game like everway or my hack grand tableau can leverage the male and female symbolism in the cards for Grand Tableau, there are four suits, so you could make certain cards male or female by dint of suit. Or you could fall back on the images on the cards for cues on male or female influence. 
If you go back to the original Everway Fortune deck, you can divine male and female symbolism in each of the cards. Well, some of them anyway. And of course, there's the Vision deck where you have all the art that you want. How about running Everway with two decks of Vision cards, one for the female and one for the male? That would cover the male and female representation in the game, even if it doesn't give a path to defining male or female magic. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, this has been a long book to discuss with a lot of content. If you've stuck with me through the series, thanks so much for listening. And as always, if you have comments or views, you can write them on the website or you can tweet at me or join my Facebook group. Until next time, bye-bye. Did you like this episode? If so, maybe you could write us a review on iTunes or you could at me at Victorplasm on Twitter or you know, leave a comment on the website, which is www.victorplasm.net or join our Facebook group. It's all good. Really appreciate those people who've reached out to give their positive feedback. The music for this podcast is provided by Chris Zabriskie. You can find more of at www.chrissabriskie.com.